a lot of companies today work very hard to get their logos right. Corporations, small businesses, too, dream and plan for months, maybe even years, to find a design that will grab people's attention or curiosity and then somehow kind of cement an idea of what their company represents, what their company stands for in their mind and in their heart. Let me show you some examples of some logos this morning you're familiar with. In fact, uh, let's play a little bit of a game this morning. See who the first to identify some of these as they come on the screen. First of all, a very easy one. (laughs) Yeah, anybody who know that one, even if you don't know the store. What about this one? The next one. Ah, yeah, you even knew that one, didn't you? What about this one? Yeah, real easy. Uh, Everybody knows this one. Yeah, and everybody knows this one. Regrettably, you all know that one. Uh, What about this one? Oh, sorry. Sorry. If I brought up any pain for anybody today with a recent loss. uh, uh, This is a little more exciting. And then this this last one, you may not even know this one. You may not remember this. It'd be... You did remember that one after all. Okay, that's good. <laughs> okay, well, well, we'll stop the game for now. You know, for nearly 2,000 years, the most widely recognized logo for those who follow Christ has been two pieces of wood fastened together. Do you recognize it? Of course you do. The cross is our corporate image. It is our logo. Now, this object has always been an instrument of torture and death. And that's kind of an odd choice, isn't it? I want you to think about that for a minute. If you wanted to start a movement to attract men and women from all over the world, is this the kind of logo you would choose? Probably not. Cross is definitely not attractive. It's not a status symbol, but rather a symbol of humiliation and loss and shame even of death, and yet it is our symbol that we seem to be drawn to. Now, if the Nike swoosh symbolizes victory, then what does the cross symbolize? But defeat, you know, it's the opposite of that. So why do Christians use a symbol of death and brokenness as our company logo? Well, there are many reasons. I'd like to point out two. First of all, Our cross is empty. It's empty. Jesus was on it. You know, he was on a cross. He died. But that's not the end of his story, is it? His story didn't end there because he rose from the grave. And we celebrated that last Sunday. We celebrate it every Sunday as we even have communion, as we just did. This is a risen Savior. This is not some guy who's still dead in some tomb somewhere. This is someone who is alive forever. And the second thing I wanted to point out is that in Jesus' case, the cross does not symbolize defeat. It symbolizes victory, doesn't it? It symbolizes that Jesus was victorious over the grave. That even though he went to a cross, Jesus won. (laughs) Jesus won a victory on that cross. And it looked like he died. It looked like, you know, that that this was the end of the story. And he he died. He went into a grave. He, he, He was as dead as anybody would ever be. But he snatched victory from the jaws of defeat, we say. And this cross that had been forever a symbol of defeat and death 
became a symbol of victory in Christ. Now, the Roman Empire used crucifixion all around the world to show their domination and power. And when they hung someone on a cross, and sometimes they would put hundreds of people on crosses lining the street of a place that they had just defeated, they were saying to the world, don't mess with Rome. (laughs) Don't mess with us because this is what we'll do with you if you try to take us on. And the Jewish leaders, the Jewish authorities, when Jesus was crucified, thought that they had finally done away with this problem. You know, this thorn in the flesh, this guy that's been giving us fits for years, we're done with him. We'll show him who's boss. But on the third day, Jesus came back from the grave, proving his power over death and hell. He had told his followers in the weeks prior to his death, he says, I'm going to lay down my life but I'm going to take it back up again. I'm in charge of this. I know what I'm doing here. I will die. You will be heartbroken, but I'm coming back, and I'm coming back for good. Scriptures say Jesus was obedient unto death, even death on a cross, but God raised him up and gave him a name that is above every name in heaven or on earth. Just look at Philippians 2 sometimes and see what God did as Jesus humbled himself, became one of us, even became a servant, and even to die the point of death for us. Then God raised him and gave him a name above every name. As he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane that night that he was betrayed, the night before he died on the cross, Jesus said to God the Father, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And he gave up his life so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be made right with God. Jesus yielded his life. He surrendered it for us so that we could be saved. And then he got his life back again, and he got a life back that is the power and the glory that he had even before that. Hebrews seven sixteen calls his victory over the grave You know, a a life that was indestructible. You know, you have an indestructible life and you try and put it in a grave, it comes back. (laughs) And this power that Jesus has over the grave is a power that is ours too, that is given to us who believe in him. One of the most staggering verses found in the Bible is in 2 Corinthians 5.21. It describes what happened at the cross in no uncertain terms. And this is what it says, 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Wow. You know, someone who had never sinned, who had no sin upon him, who had no reason to die, gave his life freely. He took our brokenness upon him so that we could be saved. He took upon him our unrighteousness, our sin, our wickedness, our evil thoughts, our evil deeds, and all were heaped upon him. And he became sin for us so that we can become the righteousness of God. All of us have experienced brokenness in a lot of different ways. You know, we want to talk about brokenness today. We know about brokenness, don't we? We know about broken relationships, broken promises, broken laws, broken uh, characters, failures in business, betrayal of a trusted friend, 
You know, the list could just go on and on and on of the brokenness we see all around us. Mike alluded, alluded to some of it in the communion meditation this morning of all the sin and, and evil that's in our world today. And people are laughing at it. They're just loving it. You know, they're enjoying what they're doing for a season. We know brokenness because sin never delivers what it promises. When you're tempted to go this certain route and you see enticement and you're just thinking, oh, this is going to be so great, it never measures up, does it? It never satisfies. Eventually, there's a sting at the end. The greatest brokenness we have is not just some of these uh, ramifications, you know, some of the symptoms, but the brokenness of sin itself within our heart. Our broken relationship with God due to our sins. But thanks be to God when we humble ourselves before him. When we admit our sins, he forgives us by his grace and he gives us the opportunity in Christ to start over, to start fresh, to start new. And we finally admit that we are broken by sin. He saves us in Jesus Christ. And we find God and what he alone can do to save us. When we find him in our brokenness, when we admit that brokenness. So this morning, I want us to look at an Old Testament passage. It's the story of Jacob. And I think we find here this wonderful illustration of finding God in our brokenness. So if you have a Bible, turn back to Genesis 32. And we're going to be looking at a couple of passages from that. In Genesis 32, we find the continuing story of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the grandson of Abraham, and this is the same Jacob whose name was changed to Israel later on, actually in this story today. The same Jacob who fathered 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. In Genesis 32, Jacob had an unusual encounter with God at a place called Peniel, P-E-N-I-E-L. Peniel means face of God. He saw God's face, and so he changed the name of this place after this event. So let me kind of set the stage. Jacob has a brother named Esau. Remember, they're twins. Esau was born just a few minutes ahead of Jacob. And from the get-go, there's a problem. Because as Esau is born, Jacob comes in after him holding on to his ankle, holding on to his heel. You know, one baby's born and here comes the other one, you know, kind of grabbing on to him like, no, I want to be first. It's almost from the beginning, he wanted to be first, but he was second. So Esau is destined to have the birthright as the eldest, even though it's just minutes apart. And Jacob wants to get this birthright. And so he finds a way in order to do that. And you remember some of the, maybe these occasions. One time Esau comes in, he's just starving, you know, and he says, uh, you know, I would give up anything if I could just have some food right now. So Jacob gives him this food, and he says, you know, I'll give it to you if you give me your birthright. And Esau is so famished, he says, okay, you can have it because I need to eat. Later on, as their father gets a lot older, Jacob pretends that he is Esau, come in before his father, Isaac, to receive the blessing, the only uh, firstborn is supposed to receive from the father. It's a greater blessing than any of the other children. But he pretends to be Esau, and he has given Esau's blessing. So he's got his birthright, and he's got a blessing. And he's done both of these by conniving, by you know coming up with some wicked, cunning scheme in order to secure something that was not rightfully his. 
Years later, he also tricked his elderly, uh, his uh, father-in-law uh, in uh, another occasion when, when uh, he's working for his father-in-law and they've got sheep and goats. And he, you may remember that story where he, he develops a way so that he gets the better sheep and he gets the better goats. And eventually he depletes his father-in-law's flock and makes himself very, very rich. And now after all of these events, Jacob is coming back with his wives and, and children back to his homeland and to see Esau again who he's done all these terrible things too. The two of them are on very bad terms. And he is quite nervous about what Esau is going to do. How he's going to respond to him. So let's go to chapter 32. And let's start at verse 3. As he's arriving and he knows he's going to be drawing close to Esau. It says this. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, this is what you are to say to my Lord Esau. (laughs) It's interesting, he says, my Lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and I have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I am sending this message to my Lord that I may find favor in your eyes. Can you almost hear the honey dripping off of his words? Here's a guy, he's used to working it, you know, trying to get what he wants out of something. When the messengers returned to Jacob, however, they said this, We went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. It doesn't sound like a friendly get-together, does it? Does that sound like your family reunion? I, I never went to one like that. He's bringing 400 men with him. He's going to punish Jacob for what all he's done to him. That seems to be the story. And uh, in great fear, it says, in distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Here's a man thinking in very human terms, conniving again. His name, Jacob, actually means crook, conniver. And from the get-go, this has been his mode, this way of operating. And he's terrified, and so he's trying to figure out a way that he could survive, or at least part of his family can survive, and he is scared to death. And so he starts to divide up his group. Let's go down uh, to verse 24. He's divided out his family. He's divided out uh, his wives, his children, his flocks, his herds, and he's kind of sent them across the stream, um, and he's going to have them divide out into groups like we've already seen. But now he's alone, and he's, he's kind of praying and wrestling and thinking, what is tomorrow going to bring? Verse 24, so Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. Uh, this gets interesting here. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob. You'll no longer be crook. You'll no longer be conniver, but Israel Because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. And that's what Israel means. He struggles with God and and wins. Jacob says, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask me my name? 
And then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. At Peniel, Jacob saw God, or at least God's angel. He wrestled with what's called a man, but probably more an angel of God, an agent of God that God sent to meet him in his distress, in his worry, in his anxiety that night. He is alone and he's out of options. He has done all he can to save himself, but he doubted what he had done was enough. And so the angel of God comes and they wrestle throughout the night, literally wrestling, much like the wrestling we may do if we're in distress as we pray through the night. And in the morning, this angel, this man of God could have outright defeated Jacob, but instead he touches the socket of his hip and is somehow dislocated. But as morning comes, Jacob refused to let the angel go until he blesses him. And so now he changes his name from Jacob to Israel because he struggled with God and he's lived to tell about it. Significantly, from that day on, Jacob walks with a limp. The rest of his life, he has this limp. What I want us to focus in on is kind of this this, uh, uh, pivotal point of this story. From this day on. He's a different person. From this moment on, when his brokenness is acknowledged before God, and it's just this very direct, heartfelt conversation with God, his life is changed by God. And as the story continues, which we don't have time to go through the whole thing, you go on into chapter 33, and Jacob meets his brother Esau, who's not seen for 15 years. Esau forgives him. And they are restored in their relationship together. In fact, They are so uh, reunited and so happy with each other. They have a better relationship than they've ever had. And it continues because of what God does. Now, think about all of what's happened here then in these these minutes, this night at Peniel. Prior to this night, he was a gifted man, but a devious man. Prior to this night, he was looking out only for himself and for his family. But now he becomes a man who is dependent upon God. Because at Peniel, God broke not only his hip, but he broke his prideful, selfish spirit. After this, there's no more running. Literally, there's no more running. But there's no running away from his brother Esau or running away from Laban, his father-in-law, which he had also done with his wives. Now he, he just stands his ground and, and takes, you know, whatever needs to happen, admitting responsibility. And he reaches that point of brokenness that is good for him. The same thing that is good for us when we recognize our brokenness before God. Admitting our brokenness takes us back to square one with God. It gets our hearts right with God. But we have to admit our sins and we have to Turn back to him. This is, this is really what the Bible calls repentance, isn't it? That moment in time when you say, God, I have failed. God, I have sinned. God, I have, have rebelled against you. And I'm sorry. And I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to turn back to you. And I'm going to turn toward the way of life that you want me to live. That's repentance. A change of mind. A change of life. A change of heart. How many of us have wrestled with God all night long about these things? 
How many of us have reached a point sometime in our life, maybe as a, as a young man or a woman or as a, an older person, you say, what am I doing? What have I done? Where am I going? And you have this wrestling match with God face to face like Jacob did. How many of us have proudly gone, our, proudly gone our own way for years, you know, only to realize we're just getting farther and farther away from what God wants and we have to turn back to him? It's been rightly said that God cannot use us until we acknowledge, confess that we are broken. James 4, verse 6 says this, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You want grace? Then humble yourself before God and admit what you have become, what you have done. God's heart is open to anyone who humbly admits his or her need for God's grace. And so that night in Peniel, Jacob gets his heart right with God. And we can too when we admit that we are lost without him. Now notice the second thing about Jacob. Jacob learned to trust God in his weakness. From this day on, Jacob walks with a limp, I said. He's reminded every day through his limp, to give God credit for the good in his life. He becomes a humble man for the first time in his life. And you don't see these conniving, prideful things after this day in his life. Both his name and his attitude were changed by this encounter with God. And there's a new humility evident in his life. Jacob, the deceiver, was changed to Israel. Now, that's interesting. If you, if you look up the name Israel, what does that mean? You'll have a bunch of discussion going on here. People are disagreeing. Now, in this passage, it says what it means is that he struggled with God and overcomes. In other passages, it says Israel means that God struggles for us, that there's some kind of a conflict going on, and at some point, Jacob is fighting against God as if he's trying to overcome God. And at another point, God becomes the overcomer and God even chooses to fight for us. And what happens in Jacob's life is his name is changed. His heart is changed. Then he becomes, his family becomes the nation of Israel. The people of God, the people blessed by God, the people protected by God. And so much so that that nation is still around today. That nation is still blessed by God in many ways, in spite of the fact that they have forgotten God and they've lost God in, in so many ways. They are going to be restored and brought back to God someday. God has his hand in Israel's history. But what I want you to see here is here this, this man uh, who is weak. He's weakened physically. But he's stronger than he's ever been because he's finding his strength, not in himself, but in God. Here's a man who is trusting God, even in his weakness. In one way, I've hesitated to say finding God in our brokenness today. I want to clarify something theologically with you for a moment. We should not expect to stay as a new Christian in our brokenness. You know, some people want to just kind of wallow in their brokenness. You know, I, I've always been this way. I'll always be this way. I'm never going to get any better. Yes, I'm in Christ. Yes, I'm forgiven. Yes, I'm going to go to heaven someday, but I'm just going to be a struggler the rest of my life. And that is not what Christ has given us. That verse we looked at in 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, 
He became sin for us so that we can become the righteousness of God. We can become so much more in Christ. And when we were given new life, we were truly given new life. When we were given a second chance, we were truly given a second chance. And not only a second chance, but given the power to overcome whatever has been our problem and our struggle up to that point in our life. So when I say we find God in our brokenness, this is, this is a beginning of the relationship And when I say that we trust God in our weakness, yes, we have weakness. Yes, we have some struggles. We have some things that we're still battling, some things we're growing in. But God's promises for us is victory. Our promise is to overcome. And anybody that is struggling, let's say, with an addiction or some, you know, habit in their life or somebody that's struggling with, with, you know, problems of worry and anxiety or depression and, and somebody that is, is, you know, in this world broken down by their life and their choices in life and maybe circumstances outside themselves in Christ has a new promise, has a new hope that they never had before. And not only a promise or a hope, but the power to achieve what God is promising in their life. So don't stay at the brokenness. Don't live in the brokenness. You can trust in the weakness because there's still going to be some weakness about your life until you eventually become what Christ wants you to become or until you go home to be with him. But you are whole in Christ. You are already complete in Christ in, in what he has achieved for you. It's not like he partially saved you. You got to save yourself the rest of the way. That's not the thing I want to convey today. Jacob found God when he admitted his brokenness. Jacob learned to trust God even in his weakness. And Jacob learned one more thing, and that was to walk in God's strength, not in his own. Now, there's another fellow that we can look at that, that we could spend a lot of time on. We'll just mention him briefly. His name is Paul. He was Saul of Tarsus. He became Paul the apostle, and he learned to walk in God's strength, not his own. In his early years, he was the most zealous Believer around, Jewish believer. He was advancing in Judaism far beyond, far faster than his peers. He even persecuted Christians because he thought they were were heretics to the true faith. And then one day he learned on the road to Damascus that he was actually fighting against God. He met God, Jesus, face to face. Kind of had his own pineal moment. And Jesus confronted him and said, what are you doing kicking against me? What are you doing rebelling against me? You're, you're going against me when you say you're for me. And he became blind for three days. There's another side point theologically. God does not cause our problems. God does not, you know, uh, I'm going to give this guy this problem. I'm going to give her this problem. I'm going to, you know, just punish this person and make their life miserable. That's not the kind of God that we serve. But on occasion, he'll touch a hip socket. On occasion, he'll bring blindness temporarily. On occasion, to make a point, something will happen. But don't make a theology of that, that our God is a God that does things like this. In Paul's case, he's blind for three days till he finally wakes up and sees what he wasn't seeing before. That Jesus was the answer. That Jesus was the solution. And that instead of persecuting Christians and hunting them down, he was to become one of them. And he became a proponent of Christianity far, far greater than anyone else that we could probably put out there. And yet Paul still didn't trust in himself. He trusted in God. 
He wrote a third of our New Testament. He established churches all over Asia Minor. And, you know, many, many Christian uh, movements came as a result of his direct preaching and teaching. And so we could point a lot to him. He never took satisfaction in that. that look what I did. In fact, he would say things like this. He said, I'm the least of the apostles. I am the very least of all the saints. I am the foremost of sinners. He said this in some of his letters because he wanted to remember it wasn't about me. It's about Christ. He even had this thorn in the flesh he talks about in 2 Corinthians 12. You know, was it a physical ailment? Maybe it was his eyes. Maybe it was some injury he, he got as a result of being stoned a couple times. People shipwrecked a couple times. Different things that happened to him was he left with these injuries. And he prayed three times that God would take this away from him, whatever it was. And God said, no, I'm not going to do that. Why? Because my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul would say in 2 Corinthians, he says, that is why for Christ's sake, I delight in my weaknesses. I delight in insults and in hardships and in persecutions and in difficulties. For when I am, street, when I am weak, then I am strong in my weakness and my admission that I need the power of God. Then I am the strongest I can possibly be. And Paul put himself aside so that Jesus alone could be seen working in his life. It wasn't about his intellect, and he had good intellect. It wasn't about any of his physical power or strength or his persuasiveness or anything that he could bring to the table. It was all about Jesus. And in Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That ought to be our motto. <laughs> that ought to be our credo. That ought to be our slogan. I don't live, but Christ lives in me. And walk in God's strength, not our own. The royal palace of Tehran in Iran, you can see one of the most beautiful mosaic works in the world. The ceilings and walls flash like diamonds in multifaceted reflections. I've seen pictures of it. It's gorgeous. Originally, when the palace was designed, the architect specified huge sheets of mirrors to be placed on the walls. But when the first shipments of mirrors arrived from Paris... They were found to their horror that the mirrors had all been shattered. They were unusable. The broken pieces were in crates. Just, you know, there's a bunch of broken stuff in the bottom of these crates. And the contractor was hesitant to even tell the architect. He's, the guy would go off. But the architect didn't go off. He said, you know what? We can still use that. He actually got in there with workers, and they busted up the pieces even smaller and smaller and smaller. And then they took all of these pieces of glass and mirror, and they glued them to the ceilings and the walls of this palace. So that today is one of the most beautiful things you could possibly see. He didn't see something that was lost. He saw something that could be used in a powerful way. And it's possible. It is not only possible, it is probable. It is promised that God can do the same thing with your brokenness and mine. No matter how shattered we feel, no matter how lost we may think we are, 
it, we're not too far gone because our God is a God who specializes in brokenness. He specializes in shattered people and emotions and relationships and, and people that have so many problems, we would be exhausted just to hear their story. And God says, that's not too much for me. I can handle that. And I can help you with that. If we come to God in brokenness, we will find him. And he will bring healing to us. He'll bring wholeness to our souls and to our lives and help us become overcomers. If we continue to walk in trust, if we continue to see his strength and not our strength, God will use us in mighty, mighty ways. Let me pray and ask for his blessing upon you and me today. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that we have acknowledged today that all of us have been broken. We have made choices. We have gone places uh, that are, are uh, so rebellious, even wicked, uh, that are uh, places that have violated your love, your desire to, to you know, bless us and to bring to our lives something far beyond what we could ever have. Um, Lord, we have chosen our own way. We've been the conniver. We've been the one using deception and cunning schemes to get what we want. But no more. No more. Today, Lord, we admit our brokenness before you. We admit that we have chosen a path that leads us away from you and away from the life you desire for us. I pray, Lord, that there's anyone here today that it's at that moment of brokenness that their heart would be wide open right now and just say to you, God, God, I am a sinner. I need you. I need what you can do in my life. Come in and fix me, God. Help me, God. Through Jesus, by your grace, Lord, I put my faith in you to bring healing to my heart, to my soul, to my life, and to help me to trust you even in my weakness and to find in my weakness your strength is working far stronger or far better than anything I could ever do. Lord, if there's somebody here today that is a believer, been a believer for quite some time, and yet they're still struggling in some way, still trying to overcome something in their life that just has a, a death grip on them. Lord, break them free of that today. Help them to know that they're not to just keep walking in that brokenness, but through Christ they can overcome. Help us to help each other with the struggles that may still be in our lives. Help us to lean on you, to find your grace that is sufficient for any time of need that we have. We ask for your blessing now as we continue to worship you through Christ.